The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, writing to the church located in Sardis, had very bluntly told them that although they had a name as a church faithful to him, yet his assessment of their spiritual life was that they were what? Dead. Sardis, as we've seen in our prophetic understanding of the seven Revelation church letters, represents the Protestant Reformation stage in church history. Protestantism today as a whole, now there's always exceptions, but as a whole, Protestantism has a name that it lives, but it is dead. Many Protestant churches, if not most, are just going through the form and the ceremony and the the motions of external Christianity, but they are void of the life and of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Sardis church obviously had a reputation among the other churches in first century Asia Minor for being a good church, you know, quote-unquote good church. She was a busy, spiritually spiritual-looking church, you know, as far as her ministry, her active ministry for Christ was concerned. That opinion was from the human perspective that she was a good spiritual church. From God's point of view, Sardis only had a name of being alive. As far as her spiritual life and her spiritual empowerment were concerned, the Lord himself pronounced her as dead. And this divine assessment is one that our modern-day churches should take very seriously. For although we, as finite human beings, might view our churches as being great and wonderful, you know, we might say, oh, we have a wonderful church because it's full of all kinds of various activities and forms and ceremonies and, and committee meetings and programs. Yet the head of the church himself may find very little in them by way of spiritual life. So his assessment can oftentimes be very, very different than our assessment. You know, a church is in deep danger of dying when it begins to worship its past and when it is more concerned about its meetings and about its rituals and its programs than it is with proclaiming the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in deep danger of dying when it is more concerned about um, systems. You know, it loves its systems and its social status in the community. And when it loves men's acclaim more than it loves the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also in danger of dying when it's more concerned with temporal things than it is with spiritual things. Fortunately, however, as we learned in our previous lesson, Uh, When we looked at the Lord's advice to the Sardis church, there is a divine remedy for a church which is dying or dead. And that remedy, which was spoken by Christ to the small remnant of true believers in the Sardis church, those were, of course, the only ones who could hear his voice, because if you're dead, you can't hear. So he was speaking this advice to the true believers. That advice consists of obedience to five key commands, and that was how we ended up our last lesson. Those five commands were given to us in verses 2 and the first part of verse 3. Of chapter 3. He told them, first of all, to be watchful. Then he told them to strengthen, to remember, to hold fast, and to repent. 
and I won't go over those again. They were in your notes, and we talked about them before. But following these five key commands of advice, the Lord Jesus Christ then gave a word of serious admonition. In the latter half of verse 3, he said, If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. So this then is where we're going to pick up in our look at the Lord's letter to the Sardis church. This is part 3 of our look at Sardis. And it was, of course, the first century Asia Minor Church, which represents prophetically the time of the Protestant Reformation. So if you would bow with me, we're going to ask the Lord's blessing on our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, we just pray today that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has the seven spirits of God, that he will minister to each of us today so that we too will receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit in all of his various ministries and his activities. Father, we ask that you would enable each of us individually to be watchful and to strengthen and to hold fast and to remember and to repent. Lord, and should there be one here who happens to be dead, who happens to be spiritually separated from you, I pray with all of my heart that you would reveal yourself to her this morning. Holy Spirit, penetrate her heart and help her to see her true, true condition before you. Make her willing to repent and convict her, Lord, of her need for you. And for those among us who may be rather lax in our spiritual walk, maybe even sleeping. We know you, but we're just not doing much of anything. Father, please cause us to remember all that you did for us. And may we measure your love and serve you with that kind of with, with what that kind of love deserves from us. And Father, for those of us who are yours and who are serving you faithfully, I would ask that you would enable us to be able to strengthen the others in our local churches and to hold fast to that which we have and to be faithful to it. And Father, we ask now that you would greatly bless our time of sharing that is to follow as we open up your word. And may we be open and honest before ourselves as we examine our own hearts and see what our true condition is as we stand naked and open before the one who sees all. Father, we love you, and now just be with us in this hour of study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In our outline... We have already covered the details about Christ, the details about the church, a description of Christ, and we started looking at the declaration from Christ. We've already covered his accusation and his advice, so this morning we're just going to finish up that last section by looking at the Lord's admonition, first of all, then his award and his appeal, so you can see where we're going. Let's read uh, verse 3. And we'll look then at his admonition. He says, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. I therefore, if therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. 
There are a number of places in the New Testament where the Lord's second coming, his second coming, is used with the same kind of thief symbolism as we find in the verse that I just read to you, verse 3 here. For example, in the Olivet Discourse, the Lord Jesus compared his second coming to a thief coming in the night and breaking into a house. He said in Matthew 24, verses 43 and 44, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. That, of course, was spoken to Israel primarily, to be on the watch for the Lord's second coming. Now, the Lord was not comparing himself here in his character to that of a thief, because a thief is a sinner, right? So he wasn't really comparing himself in his character to a thief. Rather, he was comparing his coming to that of a thief's unexpected visit. 2 Peter 3.10 tells us, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now Peter's statement there, again, is a reference to the Lord's second coming. At the end of which... You know, after the millennial kingdom, this present earth and the present heavens will be burned up and totally destroyed, and a new heaven and a new earth will be established. Well, these passages, and there are others, such as 1 Thessalonians 5.2 and Revelation 16.15, these passages all refer to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he will come to those who are not expecting him and not watching for him. He will come to them in the role, not the character, but in the role of a thief. For he will come in the unexpectedness of a thief. I mean, nobody really expects a thief to come, right? So that's what he's talking about as far as, of course, the ungodly are concerned. He will come and he will take away everything for which they have so foolishly spent their lives. And, of course, this will include their eternal souls, which they will lose for all of eternity. On the other hand, when the Lord Jesus comes for all those true members of his true church at the rapture, and remember the rapture is the first phase of the second coming. I have been talking about the return, which is the second phase. However, at the rapture, which occurs before the return at the second coming, he will not come as a thief. He will not come as a thief for those who are his own. And this is made very clear to us in 1 Thessalonians 5.4, which states, But ye brethren, that's believers, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as what? As a thief. So the Lord does not come to true believers as a thief. It's only to the unsaved and to the great mass of those who profess to know Christ and are consequently unsaved. They're professing Christians only. They're not possessing, possess, 
possessing Christians, they're professing Christians. So it's only to them that he comes as a thief. The teaching of the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament, we could say that all of the teaching of the Bible centers on three great truths. This is really making your Bible very concise, if you want to put this down. Three great truths. Jesus is coming. That's what we read about all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. Second great truth, Jesus came. Jesus has come. And that's what we studied for eight years when we looked at the Gospels. Jesus is coming. Jesus came. And Jesus is coming what? Again, three great truths that puts the whole Bible in a nutshell. That's what the Bible is all about. Now, the last of these three great truths, the one that says Jesus is coming again, is one of the main subjects of many of the Lord's parables. Did you realize that he only spoke one or two parables about his death? But he spoke something like 14 or 15 parables about his coming again, about his return. And always, in each one of those parables, always, always, his warning was to be ever watchful for his return and to be faithful to the task given in the meantime. So we could say that watching and working you know, faithfully working, watching and working are the two proofs of genuine faith. If you want to examine your own heart, see if you're truly a Christian, you ask yourself, am I watching for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? And in the meantime, am I working for him? Am I living my life for eternity? Am I redeeming my time wisely? The church at Sardis was here being warned by the Lord to not follow in the steps of the city in which she dwelt by neglecting to be watchful and consequently being taken by his, you know, taken by surprise by his sudden coming as a thief. In the revelation context, however, he was not speaking. I've been talking about the second coming, but make sure you understand here to the church at Sardis, he is not speaking of his second coming when he talks about coming as a thief because the church will be gone by that time. The church is gone in the first phase of the second coming. He's referring to himself coming as a thief in the second phase of the second coming. Second phase of the second coming. So he's not, that's not what his um, reference is here in the letter to the Sardian Christians. And furthermore, not only will the church be gone by that time, but the apostate church will also be gone by the time of the Lord's second coming because it will have been destroyed by the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation. So neither the true church or the apostate church will be around by the time the Lord comes in the second phase of the second coming. Now, neither was he primarily here in this context speaking about his return at the rapture. Because at the rapture, we just saw that he doesn't come as a thief, right? We just read about that in 1 Thessalonians 5.4. Rather, what he's speaking about here in this context, 
was a more present type of judgment upon the Sardis church or upon any Sardis type church throughout church history or any Sardis type Christian throughout church history. He's talking about judgment in which he would come suddenly and remove something very valuable from their midst. Now, of course, long term, secondarily speaking, he could have been speaking about the rapture when he will remove all true Christians, the remnant from all Sardis-type churches, you know, Protestant churches. Take all the true believers out of all the Protestant churches. And in that, in that uh, respect, he will be coming as a thief, right? Not for the Christians, but to the churches that will be left behind because he will have taken from them their most valuable possession which is their true believers. Inside of them is the Holy Spirit. So they'll be removing from them totally the Holy Spirit so that they'll be left without any spiritual light at all. And that will then allow them to join 100% with Satan's one world ecumenical church because there will be no more objection from the Christians within them and they'll just totally link up with uh, that one world church. So he was more than likely here speaking about his sudden coming upon Sardis to remove in judgment her candlestick, to remove her testimony for him. Now this was, remember, this was the warning that he had given to the Ephesian church back in Revelation 2 verse 5 when he said to her that unless she repented of having lost her first love for him that he would do what? Right, that he would come and remove her candlestick. And wasn't that exactly what happened in Ephesus? Remember when you saw the video? I mean, there is no Christian witness whatsoever in Ephesus today. Well, Jesus was warning Sardis of the same type of consequence if she failed to be awake and alert, you know, to keep watching and to keep working. Obviously, the original church in Sardis did not take his advice, just like the Ephesian church did not take his advice. And uh, I say that because today, all that can be seen in the present Turkish city of Sardis, which is called Sart today, S-A-R-T, are the ancient ruins of the Christian church which once existed there. There is no Christian witness anywhere near Sart today. So obviously the Lord did come suddenly and remove her witness. He removed her candlestick. He came as a thief. Now we mentioned more than once in our look at the history of the Protestant Reformation that most of the denominations of this movement neglected to teach Bible prophecy. Remember how we talked about that? And they neglected to teach about the Lord's premillennial second coming, you know, that he would come before the thousand-year kingdom. Or they, and they also failed to teach about the, most of them failed to teach about the imminent return of Christ in the rapture. Consequently, because of this failure to teach these eschatological doctrines and truths, the vast majority of Protestantism is not watching for the Lord Jesus. And when one is not watching, 
the tendency, as the Lord taught in all of these parables that I told you about, pick one, for example, the parable of the faithful servants in Luke chapter 12. When one is not watching, the tendency is to get casual in your work. For those who are not ready... And for those who do not even have a true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his appearance for them will be like that of a thief because he will come unexpectedly and he will come suddenly. And because they will not be prepared, they will tragically lose everything, including their eternal souls. So the Lord had warned the Ephesian church, the first church we looked at, that unless she repent, he would come quickly and he would remove her candlestick from her midst. And he had warned the Pergamos church, remember? Same thing, that if she didn't repent, he would come and he would fight them with what? Remember? Coming out of his mouth, the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And now to the church at Sardis, the Lord's warning is to watch. If she failed to wake up, and to be alert and to repent of her unfaithfulness in the line of duty, then he would come to her, he said, in judgment and remove his spirit from the church. She may go on functioning and she may go on building her buildings and having her programs and playing church for a while, but the Lord's presence and his divine power would be gone. Theodore Epp wrote this in his book on Revelation called Practical Studies in Revelation. He said, quote, there is too much playing church today. The Lord will allow this playing to continue, but he will remove effective power from such groups. Some are building great buildings which produce a show of power. God may leave us with the outward show, but minus the inward power. This is what Christ's warning of coming as a thief is all about. End of quote. Now one final point I'd like to make before we go on to discuss the three wonderful awards or the three wonderful promises that Christ made to the overcomers in the Sardis church is that the Lord's warning here to come as a thief in the night, well I don't guess he says night, but that's what we sort of assume, <laughs> to come as a thief is unique in the fact that it was announced ahead of time. I don't know if you've ever heard of a criminal or a thief who would warn his victims ahead of time that he would come to them and, you know, rob, rob their house. Or I'm going to come ahead of time when I see you next time at the Walmart um, parking lot and I'm going to steal your purse. You know, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and rob your car. No thief does that, do they? They don't ever advance their victim. They don't warn their victim ahead of time that they're coming. If that was the case, what would the individual do? Well, yes, they take every precaution. They would definitely be watchful. They would be on their guard. They would secure their home with all kinds of bolts and locks and security systems. They'd probably go out and buy a Doberman pincer or a pit bull of some kind. They wouldn't go to Walmart that day, right? They'd get a gun and keep it uh, loaded at their nighttime bed table. I probably wouldn't because I'd wind up shooting myself. <laughs> but I would definitely figure my way of escape out of the house or something. You know, I'd have the police on standby, the phone right there, and, you know, you would prepare ahead of time. The Lord Jesus 
warned the sleeping members, and they're not quite dead, but they're sleeping, that he would indeed come upon them as a thief if they didn't listen to his wise counsel here and watch more carefully over their church. So he gave them every opportunity. See how we always see the Lord's compassion over and over again in his mercy. Only he would warn ahead of time. He gave them every opportunity to prepare ahead by making sure that their church was secure and safe. And yet we know from history that Sardis, the original church, did not take him at his seriousness. And they neglected to watch. And therefore there is no witness in that area of Turkey at all. I guess most of these churches didn't listen because there's very little witness in Turkey today, as you saw from those videos. And sadly, the same is true in Protestantism, represented by the Sardis Church. Most Protestant churches have not watched, and they have not taken the Lord's advice. And they have, Ichabod has been written over many Protestant churches. Ichabod meaning the glory has departed. They go on, but the spirit isn't there. Souls aren't being saved. People aren't growing spiritually. They're not being fed the truths of the word of God. The Holy Spirit isn't there. The Lord himself isn't there. Well, let's talk about something a little more cheerful. Let's look at the award that the Lord promises to those true Christians, even in a dead church. And for that, we look at verses 4 and 5. He says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis. I want to just stop for a minute and mention the fact that I thought this just popped out at me this week. I I realized how many times the Lord mentions the word names in this chapter. Remember what he said to Sardis? That she had a name, that she lived, but she was dead. And now in these next two verses, notice how many times you hear me say the word name. He says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And then we'll leave the last for the appeal at the end. Thankfully, the Lord Jesus always has his what? He always has his remnant, even in dying and dead churches. The Lord Jesus... I'm probably not on the right transparency there, but you can look at that. The Lord Jesus stated that this dead church, which was a church in name only, had a few names that had not defiled their garment, or who had not defiled their garment. So even in a dead church, which was living only in the glory of its past, only in the glory of its heritage, there were those few whose names the Lord Jesus Christ knew because they belonged to him. Remember what we learned in John chapter 10? The sheep hear his voice and they know him. And what does he know about them? He knows the sheep by their names. He knew their names because they belonged to him. Their names, as we just read, were securely written in the book of life. Actually, these, I thought about this, to these people, this remnant, were the truly escaping ones. Remember Sardis means escaping ones? Well, these few names were truly the escaping ones because they had managed to escape from the deadness of the rest of the church. You know, they did not defile their garments. When garments are mentioned in the scripture in a symbolic sense, 
they have a reference to an individual's character. For, you know, our garments kind of give a... I wonder what that means about me today in my, <laughs> my daughter's outfit here. But that's what they do in the scripture. Garments refer to a person's character. We see that in Isaiah 6, verses 4 and 6, Jude 23. In Revelation 19, 8, we learn that the bride of Christ, the true church, which consists, of course, of all overcomers, that she is arrayed in fine linen, white and clean, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And in other scriptures, we're told that a robe of righteousness is given to those who are born again because of their genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the the Lord here is speaking of those true believers, his remnant in the Sardis church. And to this remnant, he gives three wonderful, glorious promises awards that one day will be theirs. First of all, he tells them that they will walk with him in white, dressed in white. Secondly, that their names would be secure in God's book of life. And thirdly, he's promising them that they that he himself would confess their names before God the Father and before all the heavenly host of heaven, the heavenly host. Now, the first promise to those who have not defiled their garments, even in the Sardis dead church, is that they will walk with Christ in what color? In white. Now, the Lord actually mentioned white garments, I noticed, twice in these two verses. First of all, in verse 4, he says, They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then if you look at verse 5, he repeats basically this same promise when he says, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. I thought that was interesting that in two little verses he mentioned the white clothing twice. If we remember back, I'm sure there was a reason for this, you remember back two lessons ago when we talked about the details of the city of Sardis that we learned that this city was known for its manufacture of woolen garments. Remember that? Wool, unless it is dyed, is what color? White. Wool, unless it's dyed, is white. However, because the city of Sardis was where the dyeing of wool was first invented, we also talked about that, we can just imagine that most Sardian citizens would have thought that it was far more vogue, you know, it was far more stylish to go around wearing colored woolen garments than just plain white. I mean, all the other cities in that area could have white garments, but they first invented the way to dye wool. So I imagine that most of the citizens had colored woolen garments. After all, that's what made the city of Sardis important in their day, was colored woolen garments, and of course carpets too, by the way. So visitors to the city would be very impressed with their colorful woolen garments. And then they would want to purchase some and go back to their towns and be in style. You know, look at, where'd you get that? Well, I got it in Sardis. And everybody else would have to run to Sardis to get their dyed woolen garments. What he's saying here is that even in Sardis, a city known for its dyed or stained 
raiment, there were a few who had not defiled their garments. They had not stained their garments. We could say that they were proud to wear white. We could say that they were proud to be clothed in the white robes of righteousness, which were given to them by whom? By the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, by the way, is what made them worthy. Notice that he says that they're worthy there in verse 4. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They're not worthy in themselves. They are worthy because Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ, they place their faith in him. And that is what made them worthy. They didn't just play at church. They knew the head of the church himself personally and intimately. Well, we might ask the question, why didn't they leave their dead church? And that's a reasonable question to ask. Why didn't they leave a church that was so dead? Well, and of course, we've talked about this before. The answer, very simply, is because there just was no other Christian church in Sardis back then. That was the one and only Christian church. It wasn't like today where a Christian has the option of leaving a dead church and taking his family or her family to a living church. Furthermore, even in the artist stage of Protestant um, of, of the Protestant Reformation, it wasn't that easy for a believer to just up and leave his particular church and go down the street to another church that was living. You know, leave his dead church and go to a living church. Because one or another Protestant denomination tended to dominate an entire country or at least a whole section of a country. Remember how we talked about the fact that there were state churches. So if you were in a dead Presbyterian church or a dead Methodist or a dead Lutheran or whatever it might be, you couldn't just go to another, you know, that the one down the street would be the same denomination, and it probably would be in the same spiritual condition as well. So it wasn't like today, where if you're in a dead church, um, of course, it's something you need to pray about, but especially I would warn you, if you have children, you really, really need to get out of a dead church and find one that's living. Because that is just going to, eventually it's going to pull you down too. I mean, you want might want to stay there and be a light, but the tendency is for you to get, that's what we see here. These Christians, even though they truly knew the Lord, the deadness eventually affects you and you get pulled down in your witness and you get sleepy too. So my advice would be for anybody in a dead church that you need to find where God is working and join him there where souls are being saved, where the word is being preached, where Christians are being edified and they're growing spiritually, that's where you need to be also. If God has written Ichabod over a church, you need to go. Well, the color white is associated in the scripture also with the color that is seen in heaven. We could say that white is the color of glory. If glory could have a color, it would be the closest we could get to describing it would be white. The redeemed saints of the great tribulation period are seen wearing robes which have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. That's amazing when you think about the blood is red and yet their robes through the blood are washed. It's like a, a brown cow eating green grass produces white milk. Amazing, isn't it? And we also see in heaven, we see through the eyes of the Apostle John, we get a glimpse into heaven. 
We read about Christ's appearance when he comes in the second coming, the second phase of the second coming. We see him leaving heaven and coming to earth riding what? A white horse, and then the armies of heaven, which is, the, you know, the church will be there. We, are, we will be riding, what, white horses as well. And then at the end of Revelation, we read about the great white throne. There's a picture of that, great white throne judgment in heaven. So white is the color associated with heaven and with glory. It's not only associated with heavenly glory, but it's also associated with festivity. For example, we learn that at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the redeemed of the Lord will be clothed in white. So if you don't like white, you better get used to it. I guess we'll be wearing it a lot in heaven. Anyone trying to get in to this marriage supper without having the proper garment, wedding garment, the proper white wedding garment, will be excluded. Remember, we learned about that, those of you who were with us, when we taught about the parable of the wedding banquet for the king's son. This one guy tried to get in, and he wasn't wearing the right garment, and out he went. And so, too, white speaks of victory. Living in the time of the Roman Empire, the Sardis citizens would have understood the significance of the color white in respect to victory, for they would have been reminded of the Roman processionals of triumph. Whenever Rome was victorious over one of her enemies, all true Roman citizens would put on white togas and they would join in a majestic triumphal procession through their city. The, the streets of their city. So you see what the Lord was saying to them here was he was telling the overcomers that one day they would walk with him in victory in their white raiment, their white togas. They would walk with him in ultimate triumph and in ultimate victory as they walked down those golden streets of the new Jerusalem of heaven. So that was a wonderful promise for them to hear or to think about. White, of course, also symbolically speaks of purity, doesn't it? That's probably the first thing you thought of is purity. It's only by one's faith in Jesus Christ that his or her sins of scarlet are washed white as snow. I thought it was really, really interesting when I got to think about this for a minute. What was the number one color associated with the church of Thyatira? Scarlet purple. Scarlet purple. And now we see that the number one color associated with the church at Sardis is white. And I thought about the fact that the tragedy of this is that although the original Protestant reformers escaped from the domination of the scarlet-stained church of Catholicism and they found the true way to be clothed in the righteous white garments of Christ's forgiveness and his salvation, yet... So many in the Protestant movement later let down their guard. And again, they, they began to wear the defiled garments of their own works, so to speak. That is the tragedy. Well, the second promise that Christ gave the overcomers in the Sardis church letter here is that he would not blot out 
their names from the book of life. I have an arrow pointing here to the book of life. We see this in Revelation 3, verse 5. Now, I need to spend a little bit of time on this verse because this verse has troubled many Christians and it has, and it has troubled many um, Bible expositors. And the reason for this is that some have misunderstood the Lord's statement here to mean that it is possible for a Christian to have his or her name blotted out of the book of life because of something that he or she has done or perhaps something that he or she has not done. However, if God placed a person's name in his book of life and then he removed that name because of something that that individual had done or had not done, then would that not, think about this logically, would that not then make God subject to men? It would. And God is not subject to men. Furthermore, would that not make man's eternal salvation dependent upon his own works? Yes, it would. Now, to make the continuance of our salvation, you see, based upon our own works, that is a total failure to, failure to understand that salvation is by grace through faith alone in the, in the completed work of Jesus Christ. We don't have to work to maintain our salvation. He paid it all. He paid for all of our sins past, present, and future on the cross 2,000 years ago. And for us to think that we have to maintain our salvation is going right back into a works system. Now, it's very clear if you take the whole counsel of God, which is always what we are supposed to do, what does that mean? We take the entire scripture. We don't pull a verse out here, you know, and there, and then piece together some kind of doctrine. I heard Dr. Barnhouse this week on a tape, and he said, for example, you could say that Cain killed Abel. You take that out of context and then go elsewhere in the scripture and read where it says, go thou and do likewise. And then you can build a doctrine on that. We can't do that. We have to take the whole counsel of God. And when we do that, we find very definitely that when a person has received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he is forever, forever secure in his salvation. We call this the, what is it, the, um, yeah, the absolute security of the believer. And I'll just, I don't have time to give you some of the verses. I know you know some of them. For example, John 10, verses 27 to 30, you know where it talks about no man can pluck you out of my hand and no one can pluck you out of the Father's hand. Uh, there's um, verses such as Romans 8, 31 to 39, where it says that uh, Paul writes that he is persuaded that nothing, not death, life, principalities, powers, nothing can separate us from the, power, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He also says he comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. I mean, there's a load of uh, lots and lots of verses in the scripture. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. There is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1, etc. I give you all those verses in your notes. But when we take the whole scripture and consider it, and since we also know a very basic Bible principle is that scripture does not contradict scripture. 
That's basic. If you believe that this book is divinely inspired by God, then you know God would never contradict himself. So when we take that, we find that there that the Lord Jesus here in this verse in Revelation 3:5 cannot be saying that a Christian's name can be blotted out of God's book of life. Okay? Is that settled? He cannot be saying that. So then we have to determine, well, what is he saying? Dr. John uh, Walvoord gives a very good expl- explanation about the possibility that, of what Jesus means here when he is talking to the Sardian believer and he says, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. And here's what Dr. Walvoord says in his commentary, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Quote, Some have indicated that there is no explicit statement here that anybody will have his name blotted out, but rather the promise that his name will not be blotted out because of his faith in Christ. You understand what he's saying? He's saying here that some have taught, well, you know, Jesus never really says anybody's name will be blotted out. Read it. What does it say? He says, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. So they say, well, he doesn't say that anybody's name will be blotted out. However, the implication is that it is possible for the name to be blotted out, right? Isn't that the implication you get when you read that? And that's what Dr. Walvoord says. He goes on and says, the implication, however, is that such is a possibility. On the basis of this, some have considered the book of life not as the role, now listen to what he's saying here, not as the role of those who are saved, but rather a list of those for whom Christ died. That is, all humanity who have possessed physical life. As they come to maturity and are faced with the responsibility of accepting or rejecting Christ, their names are blotted out if they fail to receive Jesus Christ as Savior, whereas those who do accept Christ as Savior are confirmed in their position in the book of life, and their names are confessed before the Father and the heavenly angels. Do you get what he said? End of quote, by the way. What he's saying here is that in the book, the book of life has the names of everybody who ever lived, because Jesus Christ died for all men. I don't believe in limited atonement. He died for the whole world. And so everybody's name, who has ever lived or whoever will live, their name is in the book of life. Well, when they reject Christ consistently and go into eternity without having accepted Christ, their name is blotted off of the book of life. Well, I thought that that was a very reasonable explanation. But let's consider something else. Let's consider, too, the Lord's promise in light of history and also in view of what the church of Sardis symbolized prophetically as the Reformation church. If we consider the Lord's promise not to blot out the overcomer's name in view of these two issues, historically and prophetically, I think that's going to shed a little more light on just exactly what he was promising these few names here in this verse, these few who did believe on him. Historically speaking, we would be wise to consider verse 5 regarding his promise to not blot out the overcomers Um, from the perspective of the original first century church members who received this letter from the postman from Patmos. 
through the, you know, from originally from the Apostle John. How, we ask the question, how would they have understood this particular promise as this letter was being read to them for the first time? How would they understand it? Well, at the time the book of Revelation was written, it was the practice for the king of any country or the emperor uh, to keep a register of all of the citizens in his particular domain. Now, this registration was something like our current population census. If a person committed a crime against the state, then his name was removed from that register because he was no longer considered a citizen. He lost his citizenship. And if a person moved away into another country and came under another king's domain, then the original king would blot out, he would erase that person's name from the register. And the same was true, of course, if the individual died. His name would be taken off of the register. So each king kept a register or a roll book of all the living subjects of his particular kingdom who had not moved away, died, or transgressed against the state. So Christ here was essentially saying to the true Christians, you know, the overcomers of the church at Sardis, he was saying some earthly kings and some earthly emperors might blot your names out of their books, but I will never, ever blot your name out of my book. If you sin, I've covered it all. If you move away, I'm omnipresent. You're still in my kingdom. If you die, great, then you're with me in my kingdom. So rather than teaching that the overcomer can lose his salvation, the Lord was teaching the exact opposite. No matter what anybody else might do, earthly kings or earthly emperors, he was saying that he would not remove a name once it was entered into his eternal book of life. So that's, you know, looking at it historically. From the prophetic perspective, the church at Sardis represents the Reformation stage in church history. Now, during the years of the Reformation movement, anybody who spoke out against the Roman church was excommunicated. Remember? Excommunicated. That means, according to Poole's Catholic theology, excommunication means not only that a person is put out of the Catholic Church, but they are also um, consigned to hell forever. Now, there is no place as purgatory, but excommunication teaches that they don't even go to purgatory, the make-believe Catholic place of purgatory. They go straight to hell, so they can't even, you know, eventually come out of purgatory. That's what excommunication means. Now, in our history lesson on the Reformation, we mentioned that a number of the early reformers were indeed excommunicated by Rome. If you remember, we talked about the dynamic, fiery Italian preacher from Florence, Italy, named Savonarola. He was one of those who was excommunicated prior, prior to um, being killed. Actually, he wasn't burned. He was hung, hung to death, and then they took down his body and burned it. Well, when he was brought before the Catholic Church leaders, they said to him, quote, We now separate you from the church militant and the church triumphant. 
to which Savannah Roller stood up and he said these words, which have become famous. He said, from the church militant, yes, but from the church triumphant, never. You do not have that authority. That is beyond thy power. I love that. He was fiery right to the very end. He was saying, basically, you can take my name off of your church books, but I know one who will never, ever take my name off of his book. In 1521, Martin Luther was excommunicated, and his name was forever blotted out of the membership books of the Roman Church. His soul, his eternal soul, according to the Pope and other church authorities, was consigned to an eternal hell. It wasn't really, but that's what they said. He was told that he was damned for all of eternity, and there was no hope for him even in purgatory. But, you see, the Lord Jesus was saying to Martin Luther, and remember, Martin Luther was in the 1500s, so he had access to this letter to the Sardian Christians, and I'm sure he had read it. So the Lord was saying to Luther and to all the others who were excommunicated in the first century, or I mean in the 15th century or 16th century even, he was saying some earthly pope might blot you out and some self-proclaimed church might blot you out of their books, but I will never, ever blot out those who belong to me. And you see, that's exactly the same thing that the Lord Jesus Christ was saying in John 10, 28, when he said, I give them eternal life. You know, eternal life isn't eternal if it isn't eternal, right? I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man any pope, any man, any church, even the person himself cannot lose his own salvation if he's truly saved. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Isn't that a wonderful promise? So if you're an overcomer, you'll walk one day in white down the streets of gold of the new heaven and the new earth. Oh, that'll be wonderful. And you'll walk with Christ. You won't just be dressed in white. He says you'll walk with me in white. And your name is secure forever and ever in God's book of life. But there's a third promise he gives to the overcomer. And that's at the end of verse 5. He says that he would confess to me. This, is, this one is just the most beautiful of all to me. He says that he himself, Christ himself, would confess the overcomer's name. You know, he's going to stand there side by side with the overcomer. And he's going to confess, Father, this, this is Catherine Caldwell. And she belongs to me. Angels, though all the multitude of angels, all the heavenly hosts are going to be in hearing distance when he introduces me and you, if you're an overcomer, personally, by name, because he knows his sheep by name, he is going to introduce us and claim us as his own before his Father and before all of the heavenly hosts. That just gives me goosebumps to think of that day. Wow. But that's what he says here. And this is very similar. It's the basic promise that he gave in two other places in Scripture. In Luke 12, 8, he said, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. And then over in Matthew 10, 32, gave this promise. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, 
which is in heaven. So you see, if you take that Luke passage and the Matthew passage, he's saying essentially the same thing. I'll confess you before my Father and before all of the heavenly angels. When a Christian is unashamed to confess, which means to declare his faith in and his love for the Lord Jesus Christ before others, whether in the world or in a dead church. You know, sometimes that takes a lot of unashamedness, if that's a word. That takes a lot of confidence and boldness, even in a dead church, to stand up and proclaim your faith in Christ. So whether you're willing to confess him in the world or in a a, a church, a dead church, or as the reformers had to do, stand up and confess him before an organized system which even threatened them with death for disagreeing with their teaching. Well, when one is willing to do that, that, then he or she is guaranteed that one day Christ himself is going to say to his father in the hearing presence of all the angels, Look, Father, you know, this is uh, Jerome Savannarola, and he was not ashamed to proclaim me before others, even before a persecuting world and a persecuting church. Or this is Martin Luther. Or this is Mary Patterson or Carmen Gunn. And they were not ashamed of me, and I am not ashamed of them. They belong to me. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to take even a small fraction of a chance at missing out on a scene like that with the Lord Jesus himself confessing that I belong to him. Therefore, what I want to do is I want to openly confess him, you know, while I'm here on this earth and while I have an opportunity, I want to be unashamed to confess him before others as my Lord and Savior. A supposedly secret Christian, have you ever met somebody who says, well, you know, my faith is a secret matter. It's just between me and the Lord. A secret Christian is inviting future shame. Now, I know there's places in the world where it's very hard to, you know, proclaim your, but you need to confess it before somebody, before Christians, before your family, even if they're going to, well, we see like the reformers, they had to lose their lives. A, A secret Christian is really, really inviting trouble. They're inviting future shame. Because Christ gave a very serious warning over in Mark 8:38, he said this, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see, what the Lord was saying here was that any man or woman or boy or girl of the age of accountability, who is too ashamed of him and of his words, speaking of, of course, the scripture, to openly confess him before others is really not a true sheep of his. That's really what he's saying. And therefore, he or she will one day discover that the Lord himself will be ashamed to confess that person before God the Father. And that's why I believe that it is a very, very dangerous Thing to keep your salvation a secret. It's dangerous because it denotes a false salvation. If you don't love the Lord enough to confess him, it's telling us, if we're looking, that you're not really self- saved, but it should be telling you, watch out and beware and make sure you're right with the Lord. 
because it says in Romans 10, 9, very clearly that salvation involves a confession of Christ with your mouth. He says, or Paul writes, um, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But what comes first? Confession of your mouth. You need to tell people in whom you believe. And that's a real serious thought. It's a very solemn thought. And, you know, maybe someone could sit here and argue theology with me about, you know, the point that maybe you won't get to heaven if you're a secret Christian. You could probably argue and we could go back and forth. And, you know, I don't, even, I don't know. I'm not going to take a firm stand on that or not. I just know that I don't want to take even a small chance on having Christ be ashamed of me. You know, even if I did get to heaven as a secret Christian, I wouldn't want to take a chance that he would be ashamed of me throughout all of eternity. Would you? No. So I would just invite, if there's somebody here who has never, you know, maybe you've even come to know the Lord this year, and you haven't told anyone about it, would you tell somebody about it? Would you confess with your mouth that you love the Lord Jesus Christ so that one day he will be very proud to call you by name and introduce you to God the Father? Well, his appeal, once again, is the same as it is in every one of these letters. He ends his message by making the appeal to those with spiritual ears to hear what the Spirit, using, of course, the very divine words of God, what the Spirit had to say, not only to this church at Sardis, but to all churches and also to all Christians. So I ask you, are you hearing what the Spirit may be saying to you individually? I don't know your circumstances. I don't know. Maybe some of you are sleeping Christians. Maybe some of you are dead Christians. I mean, not even, not even a Christian, just professing Christ. Maybe some of you are dealing with being in a dead church and wondering, should I leave? Should I get out? Listen to what the Spirit has said to you through this passage of the scripture and be willing you know when he says have ears to hear it means it implies obedience be willing to be obedient to what the spirit is saying to you i'd like to end again like we did last time i wrote years ago when we did this study on the churches i wrote some poems that went along with them so i'd like to close with a poem i wrote on the church at sardis it's called a name but dead once you were wealthy and knew worldwide fame, past splendor most surely you knew, for then you held fast to the doctrines I taught, protestants for that which was true. With greatness of joy you found in the field what men had long buried so well. The just shall all live by their faith, you sang out, while Rome consigned you to hell. So what, you cried out, we're secure in God's book. With Christ we shall walk dressed in white. Let men blot us out and martyr us too. We're righteous, we know, in God's sight. Reformed and enlightened, you could have gone far. But issues began to arise. Oh, Sardis, why could you not unite as one? My church which so highly I prize. You still have a name and a heritage, too, but your witness has lost all its zeal. 
O Sardis, once mighty, you kept not your guard. Reputation replaced what was real. Be watchful and strengthen what things yet remain. Remember the blood I once shed. Hold fast to my word and repent of your sin before all of Sardis is dead.